Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to TLS Voices. I'm Toby Lichtig. In 1954, the French duo of Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcijac published the thriller D'Entre les Morts, which appeared in English two years later. But it wasn't until Alfred Hitchcock optioned the story and turned it into a film that this heady tale of death and rebirth, acrophobia and the shadows of the past entered the popular consciousness. The novel's English translation has just been republished by Pushkin Vertigo, as Vertigo, and I have with me in the studio our reviewer of the book, David Collard, to discuss it. So, David, I wanted to ask you how Vertigo the novel compares with Vertigo the film, and how our reading of it informs our understanding of Hitchcock's classic screen version. Without disrespect to Wallow Nasser Jacques, I don't think we'd be discussing the novel were it not for the Hitchcock film, which is, by any measure, a great masterpiece. Wallow Nasser Jacques enjoyed early success with an earlier novel, which was filmed as Les Diaboliques, uh, a nerve-shredding thriller, which um, later would influence Hitchcock's Psycho. And you see, it's impossible to talk about Wallow and Narsajak without talking about Hitchcock, and I'll do my best not to. Hitchcock <laughs> never read the novel. A synopsis of Don Moore was commissioned by Paramount Studios, and he would have read a two- or three-page synopsis of the original French-set thriller, and I'll attempt a short synopsis of, of the um, original novel without giving anything away, so there's no spoiler alert. The original novel is in two parts. It opens in Paris in the weeks before the German army arrives and the occupation begins. There's a general sense of anticipation and complacency. A wealthy industrialist named Gevinier contacts an old friend from his college days, Fevrier. Fevrier trained as a cop and is now a lawyer, and Gervinier wants his detective skills because he's worried about his wife, Madeleine, who appears to be very troubled indeed, and I'll read a short extract from the novel. Fevrier is interrogating Gervinier about his wife's behaviour. Are her movements jerky? No, at least it's difficult to say. As a matter of fact, I've never seen anyone walk in his sleep. 
But you don't really get the impression she's asleep. She's absent-minded, as though her body no longer belonged to her, as though she had become someone else. So oh, I know it's ridiculous, but I can't put it better than that she is someone else. Jevigny's eyes were genuinely troubled. Someone else, growled Flavia. That doesn't mean anything. You don't believe there can be certain, certain influences which... But Jevigny gave it up. He put his cigar down on the edge of the ashtray and wrung his hands. Now, it takes around 30 pages of very slow exposition for the writers to create this basic setup, which Hitchcock, in the film, does in one very short exchange in which the husband says to the cop, I want you to follow my wife. I'm afraid some harm may come to her. From who? Someone dead. Madeleine, it seems, is possessed by the spirit of an ancestor and is driven in a trance-like state to revisit places associated with her grandmother, who committed suicide. Scotty, in the film, played by James Stewart, reluctantly agrees to fall in with a plan to trail Madeleine around the streets of San Francisco and becomes besotted with her, infatuated. In the original French novel, Fevrier goes to the theatre and sees Madeleine and her husband and is intrigued and begins to follow her around the boulevards of Paris, which are full of men in uniform. This goes on for some days and then suddenly she jumps into the River Seine in what is an apparent attempt at self-destruction and he jumps after her and rescues her and after that they enter an intense, surprisingly chaste relationship. Fevrier is attracted by her glamour and her uncanniness. There's something unworldly about Madeleine. She is, it seems, possessed by the restless spirit of her ancestor. She's channeling, as we would say today, a troubled ghost. And her obsession with death seems to strike a chord with Fevrier. There's a very strong undertow of necrophilia in the novel. Even Madeleine's perfumer, discontinued Chanel Number no. 3, evokes funerals with its aroma of fresh earth and wilting flowers. And there's a really heavy-handed use of the Eurydice myth, all suggesting a, a more than usual obsession with morbidity and death. Fevrier is also acrophobic. He's afraid of high places. And one evening, Madeleine suddenly um, runs to the staircase of a church tower in a remote Parisian village, or a village outside Paris, I should say, and um, climbs to the top. His nerves break and he's unable to follow her. He hears a scream and sees a body fall. Apparently, uh, Madeleine is dead. And that's the first part of the book. In the second part, the occupation is over four years later. And Fevrier has returned to Paris. He's a melancholy drunk. He spent four years working as a lawyer in Dakar in Africa. And he's still obsessed with Madeleine. One evening in a newsreel cinema, he sees a, a reportage of General de Gaulle in Marseille. And in a clip, there appears to be a woman who is Madeleine. And that prompts him to travel south. And within a day or two to discover this woman, who does indeed bear an uncanny resemblance to Madeleine. And they begin a second obsessive but strangely chaste relationship. He begins to remodel her. Her name is Renée, and I'm sure there's a reference to Renaissance and rebirth in, in, in her name. He begins to remake her obsessively in the image of the dead Madeleine, her makeup, her jewellery, her outfits, her perfume, and especially her hair. 
We cannot be sure as readers who this woman is. He is unsure. She insists that they have never met. And we cannot tell whether it's his obsessive desire, his sense of loss, or simply his creeping alcoholism that's driving forward this desire to recreate and effectively sleep with a dead woman. And now we do get back to Hitchcock. It's where he scores over the novel. In the novel, the giveaway is on the final page, and it's quite a surprise. I shan't give the game away. You have to wait until the final pages to find out who this modern-day Eurydice is. It won't come as a shock, but it's certainly a surprise. But where Hitchcock scores audaciously over the source material, in the film he gives away the reveal two-thirds of the way into the film, when, in a combination of flashback and voiceover, we learn the true identity of Madeleine and this second woman. After that, we're left with several reels of movie to explore the dilemma of the characters, because that's what interests Hitchcock. It's not the plot, it's the terrible dilemma facing two lovers, in effect, in the shadow of death. We interrogate the discourse, you might say, surrounding the apparent reincarnation of a dead woman. Now, earlier this year, Sight and Sound magazine published their critics poll, which they do every four years or so, in which hundreds of critics and film professionals are invited to vote on their favourite film, their greatest film of all time. And for 50 years since the poll began, it's always been Citizen Kane. Until this year, when Vertigo toppled Citizen Kane from pole position. Nothing's happened in, in terms of the films, but I think maybe critics have matured somehow. And Orson Welles' debut, spectacular as it is, has lost out to Hitchcock's 45th feature film um, in a career that would involve 30 more films after that. So what makes it such a great movie? Well, Hitchcock took the central setup. In this case, we have a wealthy shipbuilder called Gavin Elster and the troubled hero, Scotty Ferguson, played with immense charm and some darkness by James Stewart. And we have Madeline, played by Kim Novak, and it's one of cinema's greatest performances. She plays both Madeline and the second incarnation, as it were, Judy. One of the most enduring paradoxes of the film is that Madeline, the object of Scotty's obsessive desire, is fake, and Judy, the real woman. We discover that as Elster's mistress, she was remodelled to resemble Elster's real wife, whom she presumably resembles closely. Judy is far less refined, cruder even, than the chilly and dignified and solemn Madeleine. She's not a spiritual but a far more fleshly incarnation. So Scotty sets about crushing the life out of Judy in order to remake her in the image of the fake woman that he's fallen in love with. In a line in the film, which I think is immensely moving, Judy says to Scotty, If I let you change me, will it do it? Will you love me? So she lets him change her back into the image of a woman who doesn't exist. And he doesn't love her. And the film ends, tragically, hauntingly, with a second fall from the same church tower, and Scotty left alone, looking out and down into the void. So Hitchcock and his screenwriters used that situation. They relocated the film to contemporary Los Angeles through the full resources of a great Hollywood studio at the subject 70mm Vista Vision, Technicolor, wonderful costumes by Edith Head, and above all, Bernard Herrmann's extraordinary score 
lush romantic which owes a debt to Tristan and Isolde. Above all, I think Hitchcock recognises in a way that Boileau Nasser Jacques don't, the real themes. Yearning is the theme of Vertigo. Scotty yearns for Madeline. Madeline yearns for Oblivion. Midge, Scotty's girlfriend who doesn't appear in the novel, yearns for Scotty. And the audience, why not, yearns for those figures uh, in the dark. The figure that most interests me is Gavin Elster. He appears only in three brief scenes in the film, played suavely by the English actor Tom Helmore, and he fascinates me because he's the complex genius who drives this extraordinary plot, and I've never figured out why he needs someone to witness his wife's suicide. However, and interestingly for a Hollywood movie of the time, Gavin Elster doesn't get his comeuppance. He appears to escape scot-free and with impunity. It's Elster's use of a phrase, power and freedom, that doesn't appear in the novel but recurs several times in the film, spoken by different characters. We can attribute that perhaps to Hitchcock's intervention or his screenwriters, Stuart Taylor and Alec Koppel. But it's power and freedom which are two of the key subjects of Vertigo, along with this atmosphere of loss and yearning. But power and freedom, to what end? And I think that's one of the things the film explores. Power of men over women, of human beings over their feelings, and freedom, freedom from death. Ultimately, although it's a very romantic film, Vertigo is a very morbid film. So it's not a great date movie. Hitchcock said famously in an interview with Truffaut, Uh, in his lugubrious tone, which I shan't attempt to imitate. Some films are a slice of life. Mine are a slice of cake. And I I think he got that wrong. Possibly he was mistranslated. What he surely meant to say is that some films are a slice of life, but mine are a piece of cake, suggesting a kind of easy virtuosity and making light of his quite staggering genius when it came to smuggling huge, uncomfortable truths into... Uh, the minds and hearts of a popular audience hungry for distraction and sensation. Read more about Vertigo in this week's TLS, which also explores London's Foggy Nights, the eternal eloquence of John Donne, Henry Kissinger's Kantian imperative, and Christianity without the violence. Discover how politics became more transparent, why small changes in behaviour can lead to large solutions, and what it was that made Concord rise and fall. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week, in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.